0: verses of chapter four last week we we had this caution against um man rules and regulations against things that the lord doesn't forbid you know if people are commanding you to abstain from food which god created to be received with thanksgiving that that's wrong that's demonic that's deceitful if someone's saying that you ought not marry that you cannot marry somebody and be a good christian that's demonic and deceitful and hypocritical and it's against the word of god and so we kind of say yeah no rules no discipline no training of yourselves when right into it paul just goes right into no 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 like there's a right place for discipline in your life now asceticism is bad because it forbids things that god has created That are good and ought to be received with thanksgiving that glorify him. But discipline is good. Paul speaks of discipline all throughout the scriptures, including our text here today, where he says, Exercise or train yourself towards godliness. Now, the word train here or or exercise is a translation of the Greek word gymnos, which means naked. Well, that's awesome. But it's where we get our English word gymnasium. Gymnos, gymnasium. It's the, it speaks of the traditional Greek athletic contests where we've all heard of it before. The contestants competed without clothing on so that their movements would not be hindered. So the word train here originally carried the literal meaning to exercise naked. Some of us do that anyways, but we don't need to be told. I'm kidding. By New Testament times, it referred to the exercise and training in general. But even then, it... Rusty, I'm joking. I don't... We don't. Nobody here does. We love you, Rusty. But even then, it was and still is known as a word that still has the smell of the gym in it. The sweat of a good Workout. The gymnasium, exercise, work out, train, feel the burn, get your swell on in godliness. Now, what's so important to note here is train yourself in, in godliness, and its context refers to training ourselves by the good word of faith and of doctrine. How do we work out in the spirit? How do we get strong? By spending time in the word of God. Our diet is the scriptures and our exercise is the scriptures. We'll be, we will become godly by spending time in the godly book. The most godly book ever written. God's own word. And so there's a call here for those of us who know Christ, no matter how busy we are in life, to spend good time in the good book. Heard this week of Billy Graham's uh, father-in-law, who was a medical missionary. His name was Nelson Bell. He ran a 400-bed hospital in China, oftentimes all on his own. And he made it a point, quote, to rise every morning at 4.30 and spend two to three hours in Bible reading. He didn't do his correspondence or any of his other work. He just read the scriptures every morning, and he would become a walking Bible encyclopedia. People wondered at his holiness and the greatness in his life. R. Kent Hughes asked a personal friend of of, uh, Nelson Bell, Dr. Ken Geisler, who worked with Dr. Bell about this, and he affirmed every word. Then we have the example of Lieutenant General William K. Harrison, who was the most decorated soldier in the 30th Infantry Division in uh, World War II. He was rated by General Eisenhower as the number one infantry division uh, in World War II, uh, this uh, 30th Infantry Division, rated number one infantry division in World War II. General Harrison was the first American to enter Belgium during that war In which he was at the head of the Allied forces. Listen to what this book says about um, uh, William K. Harrison. In fact, I was like, man, I gotta read this guy's autobiography. And uh, it's limited print, and it's anywhere from $64 to $140 per book. So I'm just gonna have to take this guy's word for how great of a man this was. (laughs) I do like Christmas presents, though, if anyone's thinking. I'm just kidding. Um, General William K. Harrison received every decoration for value except the Congressional Medal of Honor. Being honored with the Distinguished Service Cross, the Silver Star, the Bronze Star for valor, and the Purple Heart, he was one of the few generals to be wounded in action. When the Korean War began, he served as chief of staff in the United Nations Command, and because of his character and calm self-control, he was ultimately President Eisenhower's choice to head the long and tedious negotiations to end the war. General Harrison was a soldier's soldier who led a busy, ultra-kinetic life, but he was also an amazing man of the word of God. When he was a 20-year-old West Point cadet, he began reading the Old Testament through once and the New Testament four times annually. General Harrison did this until the end of his life. Even in the thick of war, he maintained his commitment by catching up during the two- and three-day respites for replacement and refitting that followed battles, so that when the war ended, he was right on schedule. When at the age of 90, his failing eyesight no longer permitted this discipline, he had read the Old Testament 70 times and the New Testament 280 times. No wonder his godliness and wisdom were proverbial. It is no surprise that the Lord used him for 18 fruitful years to lead the Officer's Christian Fellowship. General Harrison's story tells us that it is possible, even for the busiest of us, to systematically train ourselves in God's word. His life also remains a demonstration of the benefits of a godly mind's programming itself with scriptures. His closest associations say that every area of his life, domestic, spiritual, and professional, and each of the great problems he faced, was informed by the scriptures. Great guy to learn from. And so whether it was William K. Harrison or uh, Nelson Bell, men who were buff in those disciplines of godliness. Uh, I was reading even recently of uh, General Chesty Poehler, who is the Marine's Marine. He's the most famous Marine, um, uh, stretching from just after World War I up through the Korean War. Uh, read of his story and then his son's story. Uh, Chesty Poehler Jr., Poehler, uh, he was a... Uh, Lester Poehler Jr., also a Marine, who wrote his own autobiography where he spoke of his father then retired after the Korean War and how he had given himself in his whole life, Chesty Poehler had given himself so entirely to becoming just so well-trained as a Marine and as a Marine leader that all of his waking hours, all of his passions were spent in dedication of becoming a better leader learning better tactics and how to lead his men well so much so that after, uh, by the end of uh, the korean war he'd had a medical condition that uh, caused him to have to retire um, his son writes that he resorted himself in his retired years to playing solitary and rereading the uh, solitaire and rereading the same books over and over and over again and his son grieved that his father's gifts and skills were no longer being used because he had given himself so much to being a marine commander that he didn't have any friends and he didn't have any hobbies and all he knew to do with his time was to play solitaire and to reread the same books over and over again and it made me think of man we ought to give ourselves so much to what we are truly passionate about the word of faith and the good doctrine. They really, at the end of the day, got nothing else to really give ourselves to because we've given our lives to that. Disciplining ourselves, exercis- exercising ourselves toward godliness. McShane says a person's greatest need is exercising his own personal holiness. Let's look at verse 8 together in our text. going on with this idea of exercising ourselves towards godliness for bodily exercise profits a little but godliness is profitable for all things having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come so bodily exercise it's profitable physical exercise working out feeling the burn. Taking that time to get up early and to go to the CrossFit gym, to put, on, put in the DVDs for P90X and becoming best buddies with Tony Horton. Those are great things. I used to know him well, not so much anymore. You know? Taking a run, taking a jog, lifting weights, spending a little time sweating to the oldies. Those are great things. That dude looked good. He was in shape. He's still in shape, although he disappeared off the face of the earth in 2014. Nobody knows where he is. But, but man, that's profitable. Working out is profitable. Bodily exercise profits, but only a little bit and only for a while. Man, you stop working out regularly and within a week, your body begins to atrophy. Within a week, it begins to go downhill. All of a sudden, you're loose in the cage, you know. And you're, uh, you, know you can't get up as fast anymore. You can't walk as far anymore. And as that pattern continues, man, you know, it, it, it ends in a lack of health, but even the best men take a Tony Horton, that guy's a lot older than you might think. And you begin to see it as he's working out. You're like, man, he's, he can do way more pull-ups than me. is So much, man, those ab ripper X's have been paying off, but he's also submitting to the bondage of corruption. And one day his body will give out. Bodily exercise is profitable a little, but godliness, godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise for the life now and to come. And so developing the true and pure religion and piety, it's beneficial for every kind of thing, both in this life and the eternal afterlife. Godliness of people is of intense concern to the Apostle Paul. He desires us to be exercising our godliness. To be exercising faith. But the godliness that he writes of it, it's not some, as one man said, stained glass external thing. Godliness begins in here with an encounter with Jesus. And the next thing you know is you've seen Jesus and been affected by the power of the Holy Spirit. It moves outward towards your behavior being right and righteous. The Phillips translation of this verse says bodily fitness has a certain value no doubt about it but spiritual fitness is essential both for this present life and for the life to come and so in your personal fitness do you discipline yourself to work out you make sure you wake up an hour earlier a half hour earlier you go and you purchase the the fitness pack and the stair machine and the treadmill and the 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 weights, you go purchase all that stuff, you put time into it, you dedicate yourself to it, you make sure you get that run in, don't you? But do you do the same thing for your spiritual life, which is even more value and has an eternal consequence? Do you wake up earlier to spend time in the word? Do you carve out the time for that hour with the Lord or two hours or whatever it might be? But if it is lacking in your life, your spiritual life will atrophy and the consequences are all the more dire. Because it doesn't only affect the here and now, which it will, your community will feel it, your family will feel it, your church will feel it, you will feel it, your eternity will feel it. If you are a Christian exercising godliness, It's fair to say you have the best of both worlds because you can work out and you can work out. You can have the best of both worlds. You can have the best of this which is here and now and that which is to come. Verse nine, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the savior of all men especially of those who believe so this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance verse 9 what's a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance again this is one of those times you're right? like what is <laughs> so you, okay well he just said that exercises yourself towards godliness for bodily exercise profits a little for godliness is profitable for all things having but but Godliness is profitable for all things, having a promise of the life that now isn't, and that is just to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. It's about bodily exercise versus spiritual. That's the faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. No, it's, for to this end we labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is Savior of all men especially. That's it. No, and, and what's funny is you read preachers and t- commentaries and books on it, and they go, no, it's verse 8. No, it's verse 10. Right, burger, 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 you know. Um, I don't know. It's all good. (laughs) It's all good, right? I I suppose when we're here and and we're spending more time working out than we are in spiritual disciplines, like, it's a faithful saying, man. Like, bodily exercise is profitable, but godliness is profitable for all things, for here and for there. Faithful saying, right? Oh, but man, what about, um, what about, man, this is the end at which we labor and work out because we trust in the living God. He's the savior of all men, especially those who believe. That's a faithful saying. Well, we're going to move on just knowing that it's all faithful. <laughs> to the end of trusting in God who saves men, we labor as ministers. We strive to the point of being tired and losing heart. And the, la- the, the language speaks again of this laboring. It speaks of agonizing in labor and toil as you do when you're maxing out on the bench press. Have you ever seen anybody trying to get their maxes in? I mean, it is like, you know, it's like that artery, she's like, you know, and their eyeballs are bugging out of their head. They have tiny little pupil and nothing but white eyes, you know, it's like, you're chaotic, man. I know, I'm just trying to get, you know. It's like, that is how we labor in the ministry for the kingdom of God. Night and day, toiling with many tears, Paul said. Because we trust in the living God. We do it because we trust in a God who is and was and is to come. We do it because we trust in a God that came and lived among us dwelt among us, was betrayed by his own creation, was murdered by his own creation in excruciating pain on the cross, was buried in the very earth he created, and three days later rose from the dead, vindicating his claims to be absolute deity and the savior of the world. We do it because we believe in this God who spent 40 days showing himself alive on this earth with many infallible proofs, showing that Christianity is the true and only right way to God. Because he lives, he's right. So we will labor and agonize and suffer persecution and reproach because of this living God. The God who is the Savior of all men. Many times in this text, Paul calls God the Savior, the Rescuer, the Hero of all men. Literally, it speaks of every kind of human being. Now, coming to this text, 10b, we come to what is uh, controversial Somewhat of a proof text that God is the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. If you know what the argument is, then you know what it is. If you don't know what it is, good. (laughs) But when you study this passage, you know you'll have to deal with this text. So either one... You can push it off till later and kind of drag verses six through nine on long enough talking about working out that hopefully you won't have to get to it today. Or you'll die before the end of the service and get to go home with the Lord and not have to handle it. Or we'll all try to man up a little bit and do something with it. What this verse does is it takes us back to chapter two verses four through six. Where again in chapter three, God is called God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So, chapter two, God is God our Savior, he desires all men to be saved to come to the knowledge of the truth that goes into there's only one God and only one that can bridge the gap between God and men the man Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom then the word is for all to be testified in due time okay we've got eight minutes left in our study today and I want you guys to man and woman up All right. Roll your shirt sleeves up if you want to tie up your shoelaces real tight because we're going to get into some theology. We're going to read some men who can help bring understanding to this and we will glorify God in theology because it always brings doxology praising to God. We're going to start with Philip Towner. Born in 1953, he's the dean of the NIDA Institute for Biblical Scholarship at the American Bible Society New York. He is also research professor of New Testament at Ewangelakina Sjoka Telekata in Warsaw, Poland. I said it exactly how it's supposed to be said. He's been a faculty member of Regents College in Vancouver, British Columbia, and the University of Aberdeen. He's a translation scholar with particular experience in Southeast Asia and Americas. In other words, he's the guy on my shelf that has the commentary that's this big, and it's part of a series of commentaries that are this big, and these are the guys that are recommended for getting into the deep, nitty-gritty, technical stuff of the word, okay? These are some of the authorities on these hard passages, And Philip Towner, Philip Towner says, in keeping with the theme of God's universal salvation already announced in chapter two, verses one through seven, which is what we just read. Here, too, all people are within the scope of the Savior God's concern. Therefore, God is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. That replicates almost perfectly the affirmation of chapter two, verse four, who desires people, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Towner goes on to say, in the earlier setting, God's universal will, salvation for all according to Paul's gospel and in correction of exclusivism and laziness is followed by the provision that links salvation to a response to the gospel. A rational decision coming to the knowledge of the truth. So, too, here universal access to the gift of salvation is reaffirmed in the Savior statement, which is followed by a variation on the earlier gospel provision, particularly those who believe. The point made in this way is that God's universal salvific will is realized particularly through the proclamation of and belief in the gospel. This whole thing sounds puzzling. It is puzzling. It's supposed to be puzzling. Just as in when 1 John 2:2 2, 2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also the whole world. It's puzzling especially because it goes into saying he is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. It's like Paul is saying in some vague general sense, God saves everybody. But in some special sense, God saves believers. But it can't possibly mean that because God only saves those who believe. So what do you do? Well, you study, and you go deep, and you keep studying. And you read good men who've toiled on the subject, like John Calvin, who said the apostles' meaning here is simply that no nation of the earth and no rank of society is excluded from salvation, for God's will is to offer the gospel to all without exception. Or John Murray, we have found in scripture that God himself expresses an ardent desire for the fulfillment of certain things which he has not decreed in his inscrutable counsel to come to pass. This means there is a will to the realization of what he has not directed decretively willed a pleasure toward that which he has not been pleased to decree. This is indeed mysterious. Amen. Anybody here already like there's some sort of mystery going on here. (laughs) And why he has not brought to pass in the exercise of his omnipotent power and grace, what is his ardent pleasure lies hid in the sovereign counsel of his will. To break it down simply, God the Savior desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's his will. Yet it is not his decree because if it was his decree, it would absolutely be done. Okay? So there's a mystery between his will, God wills that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Will there be some who perish and who don't come to repentance? Yes. How this all works, it's a mystery. How does he do it? No. It seems that Paul expresses chapter 2 and chapter 4 with the false teachers in Ephesus in mind, and like all false teachers, they're always elitists and ascetics. And Paul declares the universal scope and appeal of the gospel to them. So there's context to know as we study this passage. Arkant Hughes with Brian Chappelle say, Paul's purpose here is not to plumb and question the wideness of God's grace but to make it clear that those Christians who place their hope in the living God and pursue godliness will not be disappointed. Donald Guthrie, New Testament professor, when used in a Christian sense, this conveys more than the providential care of God. In fact, the last part of verse 10, which singles out believers as special objects of God's saving power, suggests that the word savior is here used in a double sense, there's a clear development in the thought since the believer's special confidence in God is reinforced by the knowledge that the divine mercy is universal in its scope. And so we go and we preach the gospel and we actually believe that God will save the people that we're preaching to. On this end of eternity, we say, whosoever wills. And on that end of eternity, we look back and we say, chosen from the foundation of the world. Guzik says the emphasis, this emphasizes the idea that the priority must be kept on the message of Jesus Christ. It isn't that all men are saved in a universalist sense, but there's only one Savior for all men. It isn't as if Christians have one Savior and others might have another Savior. But notice Paul's point, especially of those who believe. Jesus' work is adequate to save all, but only effective in saving those who come to him by faith. We'll have the worship team come on up. Towner, from the big book that I read, I didn't read the whole thing, I just read the part that I needed to, said, what God intends for all, he actually gives to them that believe in Christ, who died for the sins of the world and tasted death for every man. As all have been purchased by his blood, so all may believe and consequently all may be saved. Those that perish, perish through their own fault. Do you believe today? You know, we live in a, an age where that's a really shallow question, isn't it? I mean, we live in a culture where I mean, people believe like, yeah, Jesus, you know, I believe in Jesus. You know, he was a man, he lived, he, you know, I get it. Back then, you know, he was around, did some things, did some stuff. You might even take it to the next level, like, oh yeah, Jesus, man, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus. And in that you have some sort of godliness there, some sort of religion but you deny its power because you haven't submitted yourself to the one to whom you say you believe. And the New Testament is very clear that those who believe obey. That those who have had an encounter with the risen Jesus have been illuminated by the risen Jesus, have tasted the good word of God, and have been partakers of the Holy Spirit, indwelling them, giving them dynamite power, their lives will never be the same, and they will live for Jesus. And it will be obvious, as an apple tree is obviously an apple tree, due to the fruit that it provides naturally, so too is a Christian, obviously a Christian, by the fruit that he or she bears. And so as we read a text that in its simplicity is God is the Savior of all men, we would preach a God today who is a saving God, a Savior God. And as you hear his voice today, would you believe upon him and repent of your sins and turn to him and say, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. I've even been saying that I believe in you, but I have not been one in a diet of the word of God, the word of faith, the good word, nor have I been one in exercise of godliness. In fact, honestly, Lord, as I stand before you here today at Calvary Chapel, and I know that you look upon me, I've been a pseudo-believer. I've been a pseudo-believer. I've been a, a false believer. I've been taking comfort in that I'm an American and this is a Christian country. I've been taking comfort in the fact that my My grandpa, he started the first Lutheran church of Minneapolis or whatever. And so therefore, I'm in, right? I take comfort in that I've never murdered anybody. I'm a Christian. When really, your mouth needs to just be stopped right now. And you need to just look up at the bright and shining holiness of God in whom there's no darkness at all, to whom you will have to give an account in your dirty garments of sinfulness, and you will suffer the wrath of God upon sinners if you try to stand before him in your own defense. Instead, today, the good news of that same holy God is a God that is a savior, and he can rescue and be your hero, and he sent his son to come and be the savior of the world. That if you would believe upon him who shed his blood as a sacrifice, an offering for your sin, to pay for your sin and to deliver you from sin, you will be saved. You will be born again and there will be such an awe in your heart placed there by God that you will now live for him in many beautiful and good works nothing you even have to force it just flows out of you are you a believer like that are you a believer like that there was a story of a guy who was translating the bible into a foreign language and he was living and dwelling among the people and and he was hacking his way with the people through the jungle with a machete and just trying to learn their language. And as he was translating the Bible, he was having a really hard time translating the word believe on the Lord Jesus Christ or trust on the Lord Jesus Christ. And as they're hacking their way through the jungle, they're all just getting exhausted and they come to a giant log fallen in the jungle. And one of the natives just lays up on the log and just is just resting and he goes that's the word that's the word resting and trusting in Jesus Christ and his righteousness not on your own labor not in your own toil but in his As we close in this song today, you can just set your things aside. Man, we, we have that same will as God our Savior. Just that universal scope that doesn't matter what class you're a part of in this city. It doesn't matter what race you're a part of in this city. It doesn't matter what profession you're a part of, what education level you've got. Oh, the Lord's desire is that you would be saved and come to repentance.